Why death? Death is the part of our lives we are so very certain about, yet we fear the most. Hiding deep within anxiety, which is a current epidemic, lies the fear of death, ours or a loved ones. But what if I told you that people who embrace death and talk about it openly have a more full spectrum life experience? We know it isn't your fault. We've been programmed to stuff our conversations and feelings surrounding end of life. By listening to other stories, you get invaluable practice. Our listeners feel more informed about what to do when they find themselves negotiating that inevitable terrain. Most of all, our listeners feel a personal expansion after sitting with someone's tender and fascinating story. That's why we say, listening will make you a better human. Promise. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us for an episode of the Death Dialogues Project podcast. I'm your host for today, Kate Bruns. My sincere hope is that no matter the reason you're tuning in, you will find something with which to relate and connect. But most importantly, I hope something you hear today brings you peace. Thanks for being with us. Rachel Lewis is a foster, adoptive, and birth mom. After a five-year battle with secondary infertility and the losses of five babies during pregnancy, she now has three children in her arms and a foster son in her heart. As the founder of the Facebook support group, Brave Mamas, she is passionate about helping others through their grief. She is a contributor to Still Standing Magazine, Pregnancy After Loss Support, and Filter-Free Parents. Rachel holds a bachelor's degree in theology, Bible, and speech communications. Rachel wrote the book, Unexpecting, Real Talk on Pregnancy Loss, as a way for other parents experiencing similar loss to connect and know what to expect. You can find Rachel's book on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. My conversation with Rachel spans talking about platitudes to paper plates and the grief she felt as she experienced unprecedented loss. Thanks for being here. One. All right. Today we have with us Rachel Lewis. Rachel, I'm so excited for you to be here. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. If you want to share with our our guests where you are located in the world, since we have so many people kind of spread across the, the country and the world, that would be great. And then go ahead and just tell us a little bit about your experience uh, with loss and grief. Yeah, so um, I live across the Puget Sound from Seattle, so I'm Seattle-ish, um, Washington, and um, it's very gray and wet, as it you know all the media portrays it to be. Um, and then, as far as just uh, my loss story, it actually kind of started ten years ago. Today um, was my was today's ten year anniversary of my loss. Actually, at the time of of recording, so uh, I had my. Uh, it was my second pregnancy in my fallopian tube tour, and I was rushed into an emergency surgery. And uh, they were able to save uh, my fertility, and the doctor was able to save my life, but they were not able to save um, my baby. 
And so that sort of kicked off a very long season and complicated season of, of grief and loss. Um, so just sort of to give a broad a broad like broad stroke view of of my story um over about 5 years we had five back to back losses um all in the first trimester and I, it's all unexplained so i don't know why i had um my miscarriages and then also um we had a, a hoped for adoption um fall through we had um a foster son that we loved and raised um, returned home. And then I had him back again a couple years later for an additional two years and then just returned him home again last uh, last summer. So, um, and then we also had experienced throughout that time period, um, both adoption after loss and pregnancy and birth after loss. So um, just a lot of pieces and I guess a lot of loss and struggle uh, kind of all woven in through throughout the last 10 years. My goodness, my my heart breaks for you just hearing all of the things that you've been through. I'm so sorry for all of these experiences. Um, how how far in between your pregnancy losses were each one? Um, I would say it was about an average of maybe maybe nine months, nine months to a year. Um, some of them were a little bit closer and some of them were a little bit more spread apart. Um, and we took breaks as well. Uh, like there would be moments where I'm like, okay, I can't handle another loss. And so we'd take a break or, you know, we were in the process of adopting our daughter. So we took a, you know, we took a break, break then. Um, and then, you know, the first time our foster son moved in as well. So, um, I would say, though, that throughout that time, it was never like a, we got pregnant, like exactly right away. You know, as soon as we started trying again, we got pregnant again. So it always, it always felt like it, it took a, it, it took a long time. I put long in air quotes here because um, I know for many people, the idea of, you know, trying for six, six to nine, six to nine months um, to get a positive pregnancy test doesn't feel like long. Um, but I think just when, um, as many people probably will relate to when you're, when you just are so desperate to be pregnant, um, it, it definitely feels like a long time. Absolutely. That's understandable. You know, I've, I've never been pregnant. I've never tried to be pregnant, but I imagine that it would, that would feel almost like eternity waiting in between, you know, six to nine months. Yeah. And I think too, you know, your whole body, I think knows like, oh, I should be pregnant right now. So it, I think it's hard in the sense that, um, like you, you just, every month that you're not pregnant when you know your body like should be feels extra wrong if that if that even makes any sense at all. Mhm. Yeah, it does. Um, you know, I'm I'm wondering kind of what your thoughts are on I think just probably really within the last few years more people are coming out and talking a little bit more about 
specifically pregnancy loss, maybe less about infant loss, at least at least in in my kind of circles, but definitely more about pregnancy loss. What do you think has been kind of the push for people to be more comfortable talking about that? Well, I think that um, I think that the desire to for those of us, I guess, who who are in the pregnancy loss arena or or have been personally affected by pregnancy loss, I think the desire to be able to speak about it has been there for a very long time. Um, and I think what has given more opportunity for us to talk about it has sort of come with social media um, and then also with with others, like maybe even celebrities, I think, um, who have gone through it to be able to say, uh, this is a real thing. This is a real topic. And um, the way that we're currently addressing this or maybe lack of addressing this is not working anymore. Um, because people are saying too, like, I felt so alone, um, you know, through my loss or after my loss. And, and really it just, it shouldn't, it shouldn't have to be that way. And I, and I think, you know, that's not to say that everybody wants to talk about it. Um, sure you know, real forthright. I mean, for many people, it it is an intimate conversation topic that they don't want to talk about on social media, but just the fact that, um, they can, can be comforting. Like if they choose to, they could do it, um, without shaming. And I think that's becoming more, um, more acceptable to say like, actually I do, I do want to talk about this. I do feel like this is a part of my story and I get to, I get to own that. Um, so I definitely would say social media, people, um, people writing about it, people blogging about it as, as I did, like right after my loss is what I did was like, okay, I'm going to blog about this because if I'm going through it, then I know somebody else out there is too. And if I have to feel this way, um, I know somebody else is feeling with this way as well. And, and I may as well, share my story in hopes that both of us don't feel alone. So I, I think that's a big, big part as well. Yeah. What was the, what was the response when you started blogging about it? What kind of response did you receive? I had a mixed bag of responses. So there was definitely, um, like specific people who were like, Rachel, I feel like it's a little TMI. (laughs) Um, I feel like you're oversharing a little bit. Um, And, you know, looking back, I can recognize like that's more their discomfort with Mm -hmm. these topics than it is me actually oversharing or, um, you know, or, or sharing about something too, that's too intimate. Um, And then I would say the other the other sort of response that I got were from people who were not at all affected by pregnancy loss individually, like personally, but they knew somebody who'd been affected by pregnancy loss. And so the kinds of responses I was constantly getting from them was, thank you so much for talking about this because one, either I didn't know, I didn't know what my friend or family member was going through, and now I feel like I know. Um, or two, like you've given me a resource to give them. And when they've gone through a loss, I feel so completely 
um, helpless. Like there's nothing that I can do. So thank you for thank you for sharing your story and writing about this so that I actually had someone that I could, I could, you know, point to and say, here, you should, you should follow this person or you should read her blog. Um, so that, so I got that as well. And then of course, from people in the pregnancy loss community, um, I think people were very thankful that I was candid, um, about what I was going through in real time and that it wasn't just a, like, well, here's what I went through in the past, and now all of my open wounds have turned into scars, and and I can look at this, you know, um, with a with a different perspective. Rather, I was writing sort of in the moment, and so, um, it it in many senses, I guess, it was more more raw than than other things that they had read um but it helped them feel more seen and so um so yeah so i kind of yeah so that's why i say it's a mixed bag of, of responses <laughs> but um so mostly positive and then there was there was definitely the um the every every once in a while it was the like Rachel really <laughs> you really sure you should be putting that out there <laughs> yeah um, and then the very very small small uh, minority was you know every once in a while when you had something that got a bit more traction of course there were trolls and there were people that said really ugly things um, which you know, again, at, at the time, uh, since I was in such a, a raw place, it was it was hard to hear. But looking back again, I can see like, okay, that's just a troll. Like, I could ignore that. I don't need to give any credence to that whatsoever. Definitely. You know, I love how you talk about the rawness of it and how your your open wounds hadn't yet turned to scars, right? Because I think that's so important that we do talk about it. You know, those of us who who have the ability to talk about our losses in the moment, um, that's one of the things that I loved about this podcast and a few other resources that I was able to find after my loss, so it wasn't pregnancy loss, um, that that rawness was something that I greatly valued because it it did feel less lonely and it felt like it wasn't somebody there giving me advice from you know, way back in the day when I experienced that, it was mm -hmm. like, no, I'm in this with you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I think it's, I mean, if, if I'm allowed to throw in a, a random analogy here, I, I kind of feel like it's the difference between, um, you know, having somebody uh, like, like if you were in visceral pain, if you were just in excruciating pain, um, having somebody come up to you and, and say like, oh, I... I have felt that exact same pain before and I know what you're going through and that person being able to describe it and you know like you've got that connection with that person and, and they get it versus going to WebMD where clearly <laughs> that person who's writing has no idea but they're going to say, but it, you know, but it hurts. Like you might feel, it might feel sharp and stabbing and you're like, okay, that, that is true. But also um, like that, that is a very um, sort of like, um, Oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just clinical or sterile. Kind of, yes, yes. Thank you. That is that's the word I was looking for. Um, yeah. But yes, just it was. It's not the same experience. You don't get that same sense of this person gets it um, as you would if if somebody were actually like, no, I've I've walked I've walked in your shoes and I and I felt that and this is what it feels like. Um, so very very different 
a very different kind of way to connect. Yeah, there's almost a soul connection when somebody can can relate to that. Um, you know, I'm wondering about how your your friends and family reacted, not necessarily to your your blogging about it, but maybe that too, but more so how they reacted to your losses. Um, you know, were they supportive? What was that experience like for you? Um, I think that the majority of responses that I had were either supportful or intended to be supportful. Um, I would say some of the intended to be supportful responses, um, were lacking in the way that they actually felt supportive. Um, it's sort of interesting because at the time I, I sort of felt like screaming a little bit, like, don't you understand? Don't you understand what this feels like? Don't you understand, um, what I'm going through? Don't you understand like why, what you just said would hurt me? Um, but of course they didn't understand, right? Like if they had not gone through it or had even gone through it, um, the same way I went through it. Um, you know, they, they didn't understand. I mean, I think, I think sometimes we just expect, even if somebody has gone through something that we've gone through, they, they didn't go through the exact same thing that we went through. And of course there's so much nuance to grief and so much nuance to how we process a loss, um, that even those who had gone through something, maybe, Maybe we're in, you know, we're trying to be supportive, and, and then they couldn't. Um, so, so there were some, um, there was sort of a learning curve on on both of our sides for them to be able to say, "Okay, I'm going to humble myself enough to say, I maybe don't understand what you're going through, but mm-hmm. I love you enough to learn," and then you know, my side that says, okay, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt that even if something did hurt me, that um, you're willing to learn and you're willing to maybe get it better next time and that I'm going to offer more grace. Um, Mm -hmm. So we kind of had to both sort of, sort of, you know, wrap ourselves around this. And, and I, I would say too, you know, even some of that has come about since I've written my book where some family or friends have been like, Oh, I, I actually get it better now than Mm. I did at the time that you were going through it. Um, or I, I kind of knew that you were going through this, but now that I've read your book, I get a much better idea of what you were actually going through. Um, some of the ways that I was supported that, um, that I loved was, um, my mom had gone ahead and she knit, um, baby, a baby hat and baby booties, um, for the baby that I lost to ectopic pregnancy, the baby I named Olivia. Mm. And she did that after my loss. So she had been planning on, on knitting that, but you know, she just thought it would be a lot closer to when I was supposed to deliver. Mm. Um, and she did it anyway. And she said, all babies deserve to be celebrated. And the fact that she was not only willing to mourn with me, but celebrate the fact that my baby existed to begin with and to 
um, commemorate that with something tangible to say like this was Mm -hmm. meant just for her. Um, That was really, really meaningful to me. Uh, I had some coworkers who, uh, you know, part part of my loss happened or, or at least like the beginning parts of my loss happened while I was actually at work. And so my coworkers were the ones who, um, when I first started in extreme pain, they were the ones who were like, found me at work, curled up in a ball on, in the bathroom floor. And they were like, you're going to the hospital. Um, and so, so I actually quit work and I didn't want to go back to work, but I did want to go back and collect my things and then say goodbye to my friends. And what what they did was after my loss, they knew that going back to work just in the building was sort of triggering and traumatic and I didn't really want to talk to a lot of people. And so they, they made in this corner of this, you know, this big office, but they secluded a corner and set up a a table and they ordered food in and they had a little lunch where it was just the few of us and um, I didn't have to talk to anybody else. I mean, just the the thoughtfulness and mindfulness of that, of just to say like, maybe I don't understand why Rachel doesn't want to talk to everybody or maybe I might feel differently, but the fact is I'm like, I'm going to go way out of my way to make sure that she feels loved and comforted and supported and knows that she has our support. Um, so that's that's amazing. Um, I had a friend who was across the whole country. Um, we, we were close, but I mean, we weren't like best friends forever close. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and she, at one of my losses, she was like, I don't know what I could do. I mean, there's so little I could do, but I can at least make it so she's not having to clean dishes in the middle of all of this. And so she mm-hmm. sent us um, across the country. She sent, she sent a box of, uh, paper goods, and like cutlery and things like that so that um for a couple of weeks anyway i didn't have to do dishes we could use we could use the paper goods and so things like that that were just maybe sort of out of the box but also really really showed that that they were trying to be thoughtful and they were trying to care um and and that they were saying you know i don't have to be so close with you um to be supportive like maybe I know you in this one little way, but like I'm still going to support you even if we're not, um, you know, our relationship is not naturally really, really close. So in some of the ways, like those more unexpected shows of support um, have been some of the ones that have stuck with me the most. I feel like the the person who sent you kind of cutlery and paper goods and things like that, I feel like that had to come from somebody who knew some type of loss and who had some experience in their life to know that when you're experiencing deep grief and loss, you don't even want to get out of bed sometimes. And that it's almost like you just know that they know. Right, right. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's such a, it's such a smart thing to do because, um, (laughs) Every, I mean, everybody has dishes and nobody wants yeah. to deal with dishes, but also, you know, clutter is, is hard to deal with when, when yeah. you're, when your brain and your emotions are already so cluttered. So, um, being able to just have that one thing taken care of is such, so, so practical, um, is ugh, just so helpful. So whoever, whoever taught her that that was a good thing to do, I'm really, <laughs> really thankful, thankful Absolutely. for that person. Yeah, and I want to talk a little too about your mom knitting. 
um, the hat and the booties for Olivia. You know, I think this is something that at least, at least kind of peripherally, I, I know is a good thing, you know, just because a lot of people that I either have known who have experienced something similar or I've read about say that people, when people don't act like their child ever existed, it's the most hurtful thing. Mm -hmm. Do you find that to be true? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Yes. I mean, it's this whole, whole idea too of like, you know, I think people sometimes are afraid of bringing it up as though they're going to remind us that that person is gone. Um, But really when you bring that person up or you make their presence or their um, lives real in some way to us, that reminds us that you, um, that they really were real. They, they're not forgotten. Um, And so, so in that way, they, you know, my mom gave me something tangible to hold on to when there was very, very few tangible things to hold on to. Um, Mm -hmm. Because our loss, you know, our loss was in the first trimester and um, because they couldn't find the baby at all of our ultrasounds. And so I don't have a whole bunch of ultrasound pictures to even hold on to because they were looking in the uterus and she was in Mm -hmm. my fallopian tube. So, like, um, you know, I um, I don't have I don't have a lot of tangible things. And so um, having somebody give that tangible thing, I think can be really validating and, and really important and really, really helpful. Do you find that, you know, just for, for our listeners sake and, and honestly for my sake too, if we know somebody who's experienced something like you've experienced and, and you're not the person's mom, or maybe you're not as close, would you want to receive a gift like that from somebody who was not very close to you? Or is that something that's so highly personal that it should be left to them? That is, that is hard because, um, let me say it like this. If you are naturally the kind of person who would normally do that kind of thing, um, if that's sort of your strength, um, giving really individualized gifts that are highly personal. Um, if you are good at that, then do that. Um, if that is not something that you would normally do for someone, um, then I probably wouldn't say to do it, uh, for that person. And I don't, I don't know if that makes, if, I don't know if that makes any sense, but what what I believe is that people usually give best from their strengths. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so if that's something that, um, like like that you are good for, I guess, or good, good to do with, like that's like, that's something that you would normally be drawn to do. Um, mm-hmm. then I would recommend that. But if, if you were just as likely to say, hey, I'm actually like a super practical person. And what I would think to give would maybe I'm going to give a whole bunch of gift cards to DoorDash so that oh, they can yeah. just order order out. Then like if that's more your thing, then I would I would do that thing 
if that mm. if that makes any sense if that makes any sense at all. What I will say though is that no matter how far out from someone's inner circle you are, um, you are never so far out that your support would not be welcome. So if you are close enough to their inner circle that you know that they've experienced a loss, then you are close enough to to offer support. Um, so even if that is uh, somebody like a friend of a friend on Facebook that you have found out about, um, that you are you are not so far away that you can't say, "Listen, there's not a lot I can do, but what I can do is I can um, I can sign up on the meal train to bring a meal, or mm-hmm. I can offer some gas." Um, gas cards so they don't have to think about paying for gas um, Mm -hmm. at this time. Or I would just like to, um, you know, help with, with burial costs. Like, is there a GoFundMe Mm -hmm. that is, that is going around right now so that I can help with burial costs. So if there's anything like that, um, that you feel like you can do, um, you know, please, please do it. There's no show of support that is too small and you're never so far out that, um, that your support is not welcome. I appreciate those comments and, and I want to ask a question and just like we talked about before we started recording, um, my purpose in doing this podcast is to be very real and open and honest and I've been very, very open about the death of my mom and the things that I experienced during that time and after. And something that I'm, I'm curious to know about you, and I think this might speak to how people experience grief differently, but I'm curious to know from your perspective if this is the same. You talk about there's no show of support that's too small. Something that bothered me a lot as I was really the, in the early days of my grieving process and still in that shock and even maybe more so when I was coming out of the shock and experiencing more of the ups and downs of grief, if there are any ups. But um, something that really bothered me was the people who would just say, sorry for your loss or I'm praying for you or mm-hmm. things like that because A, I'm, I'm not a religious person. Um, and mm-hmm. so people saying like, oh, your mom's in a better place or she's in heaven. And I'm like, well, no, she's not in my world. That's not, not where she is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so that kind of speaks to that individualized piece. I think that you were talking about and the people who would, who would actually physically approach me and say, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I, it just felt like I just wanted to be like, go away. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm sorry too. And I think that's where that anger piece came in for me. Because mm-hmm. it made me almost feel like I had to like thank them and almost give them comfort in a weird way. And I'm wondering when you talk about there's no like piece of support too small, did anything like that trigger feelings of anger or anything like that? Or are you <laughs> somebody that was it helpful to hear those things? Oh, no, 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 no. See, I, I guess I would not even <laughs> consider any of that support. What you just shared, I wouldn't think any of that would be supportive. So in my mind, like when you say no support, I was like, well, that's not true support. That's terrible. (laughs) None of that is good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we've all been taught to say, I'm so sorry for your loss. And and I, that's the first thing that I want to say as well. But um, yeah. 
again, it, 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 it does nothing. Like you said, it puts the onus on you to comfort them. Yeah. Um, and, and then also you're like, well, you're sorry. Well, how do you think I feel? Like, <laughs> um, so, so yeah. And then too, you know, I, I've actually got a whole chapter in my book on platitudes. Um, and it was called hurtful words. And mm. I go through and I go through each common platitude and, um, I talk about why they hurt. Um, mm-hmm. and, and really the underlying thing about platitudes is that, <sighs> It, it isn't actually comforting. Like you said, it's, 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 it doesn't feel like support. It, it doesn't even feel like a small amount of support. It just feels like, um, like the, the antithesis of support. And, mm-hmm. and the reason for that is, is that, um, platitudes, what they seem to do is offer comfort to the comforter. So the person who is supposed to be offering comfort to the words that they are saying, give themselves comfort. And what it does to the person who's bereaved is it it ostracizes them mm-hmm. um, and it shuts them down. And um, it's kind of like, okay, so so let's let's play out a platitude. Um, let's say i I went through a loss, and Sally comes up to me and she says, "Well, everything um, happened for a reason. Oh. What that does for Sally, is it says, is Sally could be thinking here, okay, if there is a reason in this universe, I may not know the reason, I might not need to know the reason, but if it exists, then that means she doesn't have to hurt so badly. Or me, you know, I, I don't have to hurt so badly, like me, okay. Rachel. But um, if, uh, and, and, if, and if, if Rachel doesn't have to hurt so badly about this loss, then I don't have to feel so badly about Rachel feeling badly. Mm-hmm. And then I can also be reasonably reassured that there couldn't possibly be a reason that would exist for my baby to die. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so it, it makes her be like, you know, and then it's the added bonus of saying, well, well, now I've supported this person and now I've comforted yeah. this person and I've given her an answer to her pain and haven't I been so mm-hmm. wonderful? And it's like, no, actually, you've been terrible um, <laughs> because that's not that, <laughs> uh, that's not comforting. That's not helpful. That's hurtful. And so um, and, and then it shuts me down because if something happened for a reason, what right do I have to complain? Right. And if I don't understand the reason, um, you know, it's, it's saying basically like I can't question it because even if I can't understand it, I just have to trust and believe that it's there mm-hmm. and then that should somehow be enough for me. Yeah. So I think if we were to take every single platitude, we would be able to break it down and say, mm-hmm. here's why you think that feels comforting. Mm-hmm. But on – you know, on the receiving end, here's why it's actually hurtful. Wouldn't the world be such a better place if we could actually like pause that moment anytime somebody expressed some comment like that? We pause, educate, and then go back to where we were and have a redo. <laughs> yes. Yes. It would be. Imagine it would like be, how it much- would be so helpful. 
yeah, how much pain we could we could stop from from ha- how much extra pain? I mean, it's already hard enough to experience loss and death and grief and all of these things. But then, you know, if we could just stop with the empty, um, empty comment, you know, it's almost like getting a birthday card in the mail that just says happy birthday period. Like that, that's Mm. not personal. That's not, not anything worth anything. In my opinion, I know, I know some people don't think that way, but you know, it's, it's just so different. And I think kind of going back to talking to people who understand loss and maybe it's not the same exact kind of loss, but they know, they, they know that pain and they know maybe just to send you some paper plates. Um, Mm -hmm. They know versus people just kind of panicking and locking up and, and, you know, for goodness sake, I think I said at the beginning of our conversation, I'm sorry that you experienced these things. It doesn't mean that I'm not, I mean, I genuinely am, but also like, what are people to say to that, you know? Right, right. And, and it is hard. And I think um, sometimes, you know, if you if you had to choose something to say, and and you didn't Mm -hmm. know what to say, I'm sorry Mm -hmm. is is probably the best of all the things that may come out of your mouth um, mm-hmm. if you really don't even have any idea what to say. Um, yeah. So if you need a fallback, by all means, please use that as your fallback because um, at the very least, you are trying to empathize at, at the mm-hmm. very, very least. Um, so if you if you can't, can't think of anything else, um, <laughs> please use that as your backup. That's so much better mm-hmm. than a lot of other, a lot of other more hurtful things that you could say. Um, oh, and yeah. even I would, I would say better than silence. Um, mm-hmm. because silence, silence is maybe the worst platitude there is. Um, mm-hmm. and so, so I think, um, if we, if we could try to think about, emp- you know, empathy, um, rather than say, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, we could simply say, I am, I am sad with you. Mm. Um, and I think that says like, I am willing to sit in your circle of feelings with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I am willing to say, um, I'm going to take on some of that grief with you and not that that spares you any of your grief mm-hmm. but I'm not so afraid of it that I don't want to touch yeah. it with a 10-foot pole like I'm yeah. gonna cozy up right next to your side and I'm gonna let you feel your feelings and some of them are gonna come off on me and that's gonna be okay yeah um and so I think um to me saying you know I'm I'm so sad with you that your baby died or I'm so sad with you that your mom died um, mm-hmm. you know, you could say, um, you could even say, I truly don't have the right words. I just want you to know I care. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, being honest instead of trying to come up with a solution or trying to come up with an answer for their pain, mm-hmm. being really honest and saying, I don't have an answer. There's no reason I could ever think of that would ever be good enough for why, you know, your family member had to die. I'm, 
mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm sad and I care. Um, a phrase that I like, and maybe, you know, this might not resonate with everybody, but it, it, it resonated with me enough. I named one of my chapters after it called holding, holding space. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, I really appreciate the idea of, of holding space with and for someone to basically say, um, I, uh, I can't make this go away. Um, and I can't fix it. And, um, but I'm not going to try to rush you out of it. And I'm not going to try to rush you out of your feelings. And, um, I just want you to know I, I'm holding space in my mind and my heart and my day and my calendar and my food budget. You know, I'm whatever it is, like I'm holding, I'm holding the space that you might need, um, for this time, for how big this loss is for you. Mm. And, um, I think that can be a really compassionate and kind thing to say as well. So, um, I hope that this has given, you know, I hope this has given some ideas of other, empathetic things that people can say. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, it it may even take some practicing to say those things so that when Mm -hmm. you're stuck in the moment and somebody out of the blue comes comes out with saying some bad news that had happened to them, um, you know, your your old regular, like, I'm so sorry, doesn't come out. Like maybe you need to practice with somebody or just practice in the mirror just so it starts naturally rolling off your tongue. and I think that that could, you know, that that can be helpful. I think um, just practicing being grief literate goes uh, can go, go a really, really long way for us to actually becoming better at uh, supporting other people. Absolutely. And I just I wrote down that holding space in my calendar and my food budget, like how genius is it, you know, these things that we kind of get like stunned in the moment when we're talking to somebody who's experienced great loss. But um, just something as simple, as simple yet as genius as that. I hope that that's helpful for our listeners. I know it's helpful for me. Um, if we can, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the specifics of your losses. And you said that you experienced kind of five back-to-back losses. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can speak to the differences in how each of those felt for you mentally. Hmm. Yeah, I can. I can. Um, I, the first one, um, well, actually, let me give you a little bit of backstory. <laughs> Set the stage here a little bit for my first loss mm-hmm. to, to help uh, listeners understand why I, I responded the way I did or maybe uh, help um, understand. So our very first pregnancy, um, we had a threatened miscarriage at eight weeks. And before I had even miscarried, um, which spoiler alert, I didn't. Um, our daughter, our daughter is uh, currently alive and well. Um, people had already started giving me platitudes, and they had already started saying, "Well, everything happens for a reason," or "This is just nature's way of taking care of pregnancies that are not healthy," um, etc. And so, um, when it, when I'd gotten, you know, the notification from the doctor that I was hemorrhaging close to where the baby was, um, and that it was a 50, 50 chance. And, you know, you just had to follow up within a week. 
I did what any mother does that doesn't want to lose their baby. <laughs> I put myself on bed rest. Doctor didn't say it would help, but like I wasn't going into work. <laughs> um, and I was just like, I'm going to hope and beg and plead with God in the universe. Um, I'm going to vague book on Facebook so everybody knows like I need support, but I'm not really going to tell you why. Um you know, like I'm gonna do, I'm gonna do all the things that that um, that I feel like are in my control, that I feel like I can do, um, to try to make sure this baby sticks around, um, and and then you know she did hold on during that time. Um, then we had threatened premature labor at 28 weeks, um, and she held on again. And then at 36 weeks, I developed a life-threatening complication called HELP syndrome. Um, it's where um, it's a it's sort of considered a variant of preeclampsia, a more severe form of preeclampsia, um, where your body basically turns against itself because of pregnancy. That's the easiest way that I can describe it. Um, but I was at risk of multiple organ failure, stroke, bleeding out, um, seizures, um, all, all of these things. And, and the biggest concern at that point was actually that my liver was going to rupture. Um, and so, so her heart rate dropped for eight minutes and, uh, her heart rate was in the sixties, um, for, for a baby in, in utero. That's really, really dangerous. It's a pretty severe bradycardic episode. And so, um, when they were able to get her heart rate back up or when it finally went back up, they're like, we are we are taking you in for a C-section like right now. And so, um, so they did it. And, and then of course, uh, so, so she did, she did live. Um, but then I left the hospital with obviously some pretty severe trauma around that. Um, and, and then with that, my husband was like, well, I never want to be in the position again where I might have to choose between my baby's life or my wife's life. Like, I don't ever want to have to deal with that again. And so, it was at that point that we were like, okay, um, I guess, I guess we're not going to try pregnancy again. I mean, I guess, I guess we're going to adopt. Like that's how we're going to, we're going to build our family from this, this point forward. Um, and I had already planned to adopt in my future. And so that wasn't shocking, but it, it definitely was a loss because, you know, we, as humans, we don't always like take choices taken from us. And so, um, so, so all that to say, we had just gotten licensed for foster care, so we could adopt. When I found out, I was expecting Olivia, and I think it was the fact that I I couldn't, um, or or I had thought rather that I couldn't have any more children. That I just jumped in both feet with this pregnancy, and so I was just completely all in. I was like, I'm going to. Um, eat health, you know, healthfully, and I'm going to research all the ways that I can have a healthy pregnancy after help syndrome and preeclampsia. And I'm uh, like, it just became my whole world for the brief time that I was pregnant with her was just to try to sustain, you know, this pregnancy in, in the hopes of it being a better one, you know, a better outcome than the one before. And, um, and so, so when we got that hint that things weren't going well, you know, when my uh, coworkers had to peel me off the bathroom floor and send me to the hospital, um, and when the when the ER doctor couldn't give me a 
and I, you know, a really solid answer as to what was happening. Um, I clung to that same belief, like, well, if I just hope and beg and plead the universe, um, you know, if I, if I pray to God, because if, you know, for me, faith was a big part of my story. And so, uh, if I just pray to a God, like that, that God created my first baby and, um, that God also sustained that baby and that person or that God must also still care very much about this one the same way. So I just didn't believe that, that, um, there would be any other outcome, um, at least I, I had a hard time believing that it that it could be. And so when it did end up that we were not able to keep Olivia and um, my pregnancy was not going to progress any further, um, that was like spiritual whiplash. And it's sort of my whole foundation of believing in my world sort of came crumbling down. Um, a lot of questions of faith came up that I'd never wrestled with before. Um, a lot of my basic belief in the world as being safe, because up until that point, it really had been for me. Um, you know, or at least safe-ish. <laughs> um, that, 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 my love would somehow be sufficient, that the people that I loved would somehow be safe enough. Um, and that even when things got scary, scary say like with my uh, help syndrome, even when it got scary, there was still going to be a good outcome at the end of it. Um, and so all of that, that sort of worldview had just gotten upended. And um, so I would say my first pregnancy loss was sort of shocking. And I felt like I'd been thrust onto a timeline that should never have existed. Um, it's kind of like you know those uh, back to, like Back to the Future movies where um, it, there was just this, this like the whole crux of the movie is like don't don't have another timeline like go back to the future make things the way they were supposed to be without <laughs> without creating this alternate timeline or this alternate universe. Um, I felt like I had been on this trajectory, you know, the trajectory that started with my, with my pregnancy and that was where, where I was supposed to be. And then suddenly, um, suddenly I was on this new trajectory, um, with my loss and no matter how much I desperately wanted to get back, you know, to the timeline that the way I thought things were supposed to be, I couldn't. And, um, so there was this huge lack or feeling of, of lack of control. Um, and I suppose that lack of control had always existed. I just hadn't recognized it, um, up until that time. So, so for me, the first loss was, was the most shocking and I probably had the fewest, um, resources to, to really deal with it. And so, um, each, each one, however, was was different in its own way. Um, my second miscarriage happened. I f sometimes I feel like you you couldn't write you couldn't make this up if you tried. Um, my <laughs> second miscarriage happened as I uh, I was bleeding as I was on the way to my grandmother's funeral, um, where I was just like really. <laughs> really. Um, and so that loss was, was sort of confused. Um, and con you know, I was still, I was still grieving for Olivia. Now, now, now I had a miscarriage. This was my first miscarriage. Um, I didn't know what to do with that. And, um, 
I was also grieving for my grandma. So it was just really complicated emotions. And it got to the point where it's like, I don't even know what or who I'm grieving for anymore at this point. Like I'm just so overwhelmed. Um, and a few months after that, of course, we, 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 I say, of course, you don't know this, but, but that's when we had our, um, that's when we had our hoped for adoptive placement that did not happen. And, um, and so all that happened right before, uh, right before the first year anniversary of, of our, of our first loss. And so it was just a very complicated uh, complicated year. Um, my second loss, or sorry, my third loss, I didn't quite know how, how to deal with that because we had actually just had our, um, adoptive daughter move in. And, um, I sort of got this feeling that people didn't want me to be pregnant because, um, I now had this foster, um, baby. She was, um, she was over one, but but I almost felt like people were sort of like, well, why in the world are you, why in the world are you trying to still get pregnant? You know, when this other baby has just moved in. Um, So that loss was when I felt like I couldn't, I couldn't really talk about as much Um, almost as though I didn't have the right to grieve maybe because I didn't have the right to try. Um, Our, our fourth loss um I think that I I was working with a reproductive endocrinologist at that at that time. And um I knew pretty early on uh with the last with the last three losses, I knew pretty early on just based on blood work um that things were not going in a good direction and so um that one, I almost felt like I was a fool for hoping um, that I should have known better at this point. That you know, at that point, it was our it was our fourth loss, and I think I really stopped feeling like I deserved a good pregnancy um, or a good pregnancy outcome, and almost like I was just a complete fool for hoping. And um, the joke was on me that that I would have even tried again. I guess you get to a point where you've had so much bad news and so many bad outcomes that the idea that anything could possibly be, um, could turn out well, just, it, it feels too, feels too luxurious. Like hope is a luxury that you can't afford. Um, and then, um, our last loss, I would say was very confusing. So, our foster son, who at that point we'd uh, been raising for over a year at that point. Um, so we had him from when he was five months old until he was almost two. Oh, um, wow. And our last, yeah, and our last, uh, our, our last pregnancy loss happened um, September and he left in December. So just a couple months before before he left and about six months before we, um, got pregnant with our daughter who is living our second, um, our second live birth, um, out of seven pregnancies. And so, so that one it's, it's, 
it was confusing because I was grieving for our our foster son at the same time, and there was so much going on with all of that. And it was, it just again, it felt it felt like a lot, and I I almost felt too like I didn't deserve support because I already felt like people had supported me through the first several. So, and not that, not to say that people didn't support me, but but I just felt like I didn't deserve it anymore. I felt like I was being extra, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> if that makes any sense. It does so, make sense. So yeah, I guess I guess I took they were each they were each different in their own way. Um and and that depended a lot on just what I was what else I was going through um at that time. But but I would say a level of isolation, the level of isolation increased with each one. Um feeling like I didn't have the right to grieve um increased each time. You've been through so many different things, and I imagine, at least it sounds like, have run quite the gamut of feelings about all of these different losses and different, really different types of loss, too, which I think a lot of people don't even necessarily think about. Um, If you had to give a piece of advice to our listeners who may be experiencing something similar, um, what would you say to them? to qualify would they be going through a pregnancy loss or maybe it's a more ambiguous loss or just having gone through multiple losses any of them any of them and all of them <laughs> okay. <laughs> um well i would i guess i would say no one else gets to determine whether you're worthy of support um there's no outward measurement that says you only got through this foreign pregnancy or you've already experienced so much. So what is this? Or you only knew them for so long. Um, or like, you know, that it wasn't official yet. So why are you upset? I mean, I think that we try to, to quantify things and, and, and sort of qualify things um, to help us make sense um, of our world. But really, that doesn't, it's it's not helpful when it comes to grief. Um, and it's not helpful when it comes to grief support. So you don't have to prove to anybody that you are worthy of grief support or that your loss is worthy. Um, it just is because you're grieving and that's it. Um, it doesn't need any other qualifiers. Uh, qualifiers to that. So I would say that, and I would say that you get to grieve however and however long you need to. And um, for many of us, that looks like forever, um, that, that grief is going to be a part of our life and it might not look the exact same way, mm-hmm. um, but it, but it, it's okay for it to be a forever presence in your life. Um, and, and also I would say too, your grief does not always have to be expressed in sadness. Um, there are so many different ways that we love the people around us. Um, we don't just um, express our love in one way. So why would we only express our grief in one way? So if you choose to honor a loved one and the way that you do it 
um, is something that brings you joy, you don't have to say, well, that's not grief or that's not the right kind of grief because I'm not bawling my eyes out. Um, it gets it gets to be whatever it needs to be and it gets to look like whatever it needs to look like. And you can express that however you need to express that. That's beautiful advice. I, I love how you said we don't just express our love in one way. So why would we express our grief in one way? And that makes so much sense. And I have talked to a lot of people through, you know, this podcast and otherwise, and that's such the, it's, it's the perfect succinct way to kind of sum up love and grief and how they really are one and the same. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are. Absolutely. Well, I want to make sure that people know about your book. So if you want to talk about that a little bit, we're running up just on about an hour right now. And so I want to make sure that people know about the resources that you've put out into the world that are out there for for people to use and to learn from, whether it's them that experience the loss or not. Um, So if you want to talk a little bit about that, I would love it. Yeah. Um, So as you said, I did write a book. Um, It released in August of 2021. So just this year. And the title of it is Unexpecting Real Talk on Pregnancy Loss. And uh, this book was really the book that I needed when I went through my second loss, when I learned from blood work that I was going to miscarry um, and I just didn't know what to expect because this pregnancy loss was different than my ectopic pregnancy. And I thought, um, there's so much that that I don't know. And uh, at least in my, you know, in my instance, I had uh, heard from a nurse, basically the only instruction I got was, you know, your, your HCG numbers, which are your pregnancy hormones, um, have dropped and you're going to miscarry. Let us know if you bleed through more than one pad in an hour. And really that's, you know, for all of the information that there is around how to be pregnant, (laughs) whole books dedicated to how to be pregnant. Um, I didn't know how to miscarry. And that was, that was not enough instruction for me on like, what, what do I expect and what do I do and how do I prepare? Um, and so my husband and I, we actually went to Barnes and Noble and I was like, I'm going to find that book. And, uh, I, I couldn't, I found two books that addressed miscarriage and one of them, the title basically insinuated like how not to miscarry. And I was like, okay, oh, that's not helpful. Gosh. And um, <laughs> uh, and then the second was Taking Charge of Your Fertility, which actually is an excellent fertility book. But um, I had already tried to take charge and it didn't work. And so I was just sort of left with like, how how is this such a common thing and nobody's talking about it and nobody can tell me what to what to think and what or how to feel and how to prepare? Um, so I decided at that moment that I would, um, I would write that book. I would write what to expect from your body, heart, mind, and soul, um, when it came to grieving the loss of a baby. And so, um, the, the goal of this book too, was to not just, um, encompass my experience. Um, this book has bits and pieces of my story in it, but this book is not my story. Um, it is it actually has the stories of uh, about 150 other parents. Not not all of their voices are featured, um, but that was the size of my focus group, people who were giving me input on, on writing. And so to me, it felt important that somebody know that it 
um, if they had an infant loss, they could come to this book and know that their story would be reflected back to them. Or if they had a stillbirth or if they had a molar pregnancy, um, that there would be somebody featured in this story um, that, that had a loss similar, similar to them. And so, um, so it, it talks about, it's kind of broken up into a loss, which goes over the immediate effects of loss on your body, heart, mind, and soul. Um, these are going to be shorter, shorter chapters because we all know how our, um, how grief brain works, right? And our attention spans when we're right in the thick of, thick of loss, it can be really, really hard to focus. And so I created more, uh, some shorter chapters and just some principles um, of what to know. And then for those who are ready to dive a little bit deeper, um, in, in the next section, I go over um, on lament, I talk a lot about um, more like what does grief do to your mind? What does it do to your body? How can you protect and care for your body in the middle of this? Um, how can you care for your mind? How can you care for your soul and um, and and for your heart and for your emotions? What what might this look like and what might this feel like? So I go a little deeper in that. Um, and then in the third part, love, I talk about how to grieve within the context of community how to support the relationships that are around you and how to let those relationships support you. And then um, in the last section, I talk about legacy. So what does this look like moving forward? Um, what does what does a grief look like that you can carry with you for the rest of your life? Um, what might your next choices be, especially when it comes to pregnancy loss? So for fertility, you know, what, what does adoption after loss look like or recurrent loss or infertility after loss or pregnancy after loss? And then how can you create a legacy um, that does not answer the question of why your child had to die, but maybe answers the question of what now? And so, um, and that, that I want to give credit where it's due. Um, Dr. Sarah Philpott is the one that, um, and I give her credit in the book as well. She has that uh, she shared that sometimes you have to go from from asking yourself why to asking what now. And I loved that so much. And so um, I share a little bit about that in the book. So, and then in the last part of it is um, uh, some additional resources. There's quite a bit of resources that I have uh, listed for um, for you. So if you are needing more targeted support or you're looking for other books that I would recommend, um, that kind of thing, I would, um, those are some good resources. And then through, through it all, um, through each section, I also have some journal prompts because we know that writing and telling our stories, just like we were doing today, um, telling bits of our, of our stories and what, you know, you what, what, your podcast does is telling people stories like that's so important. So giving just some prompts of like how you can work through your own story and tell your own story um, is is in there as well. So you can get that book um, anywhere that books are sold, especially online. Um, and then if you go to unexpectingbook.com, uh, for those of you who either want a bonus chapter um, or specifically for those of you who maybe know somebody who's experienced a pregnancy loss and you're just not quite sure yet what to do or what to say or how to respond, I have a free chapter um, that you, it's an instant download that you can access at unexpectingbook.com. 
and it's titled How to Love, uh, sorry, how, how to Support Your Loved One Through Baby Loss. And so um, that chapter will will hope give you some guidance, uh, hopefully give you some guidance on on how to help someone um, that you love. And then I would say the last sort of support resource I have um, outside of what you'll see on unexpectingbook.com is my online support group. And this is for any person who is grieving the loss of a child and a loss of their own child um, in any capacity, whether that's their own foster child or adoptive child, whether that's their biological child, whether that loss was pregnancy loss or it was an you know your adult child who who died, um, whether it was through the loss of a child through infertility and never being able to have a child, um, so whatever that loss might look like, um, I kind of came to uh, the group title is Brave Mamas on Facebook. I kind of came to that idea for that support group on on the concept that those of us who have grieved and we know what it's like to grieve a child, we have more in common than we think. And we have more to offer each other um, than we sometimes give ourselves, give ourselves credit for. And, um, and so, so I wanted it to be an inclusive group where we are not saying, well, you had a loss at, you know, 13 weeks instead of 12. So you go, you get shoehorned into this group or you have living children and you don't. So you get shoved into this group. Um, I wanted it to be a little bit more, um, I wanted it to be more inclusive um, for that reason. That's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing all that you're doing um, and giving people a space to really come together and find resources and utilize them as they need. These conversations and these resources are incredibly important to have. And I'm, I feel so privileged that I was able to talk with you. I think this conversation will help so many people as well as your book and the support group as well. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. I just really enjoyed, um, really enjoyed sharing with you and with your audience and um, just how receptive you've, you know, the in welcoming you've been. So thank you again for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks for being here. We hope you've enjoyed your time with us today. We'd love for you to get further connected with our project. You can find the links in the podcast information. You can also find the Death Dialogues Project on Facebook, on Instagram, and at www.deathdialogues.net. Take good care and see you next time.